0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, first of all, I don't know if he's in the room, but just wanted to give it up to God for bringing uh, Trent with us this morning. Oh, there he is at the back. All right. Thank you so much. That was, uh, that was incredible. So good morning, New Hope Community Church. Um, so we today are in week two of this series in the book of Galatians, which we've titled one gospel, one family. Um, yeah, and as Jed mentioned before, we're kind of having this like community Bible study, like on the on the wall of the Caffa Felatorium out uh, out there. Uh, when you're having your coffee and you're having your donuts. If, if there's times that you've had in your, like your personal study or something that sticks out to you in the sermon, I would encourage you to just take a note. Our, our vision is to just have that text just kind of like... It's not like we're grading Paul's paper. It's like we're, uh, we're, just, we're just littering it with the, the things about it that have affected our community. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul around 51 A.D. during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius. The leadership of the Roman Empire during these years of the Apostle Paul's ministry offered some um, of the most outrageous moments in Roman history. As the church was kind of growing from a small group of committed Jesus followers, the empire was beginning to show its first cracks from the top down. Rome doesn't really feature much in the Galatians letter directly, but it is always an ever-present backdrop to the entire New Testament. May it be a lesson for us that our calling to be a Jesus community always remains steadfast in our mission to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples regardless of the times. See, armed with the gospel message, our call is, as, as one church community has recently put it, our call is to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. You see, it would be a mistake for us to assume that because the world is in turmoil, our call would be to ignore it and just go about our business with our head down. No, I believe that our Lord has taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That means that the things that we involve ourselves with here are all to glorify God out there. Our blessings, our talents, our treasures seek to make a measurable impact on the world in which we live. If you've ever thought about the church as just what happens on Sunday morning, you've reduced Jesus to a spot on your calendar instead of inviting Him to sit on the throne of your life. The Gospel of Christ announces God's rule and God's reign today. That is what gives us the freedom and courage to live in this world as ambassadors of Jesus and his gospel. And to that end, we must be clear in here about what this gospel message is all about. I've, I've printed perhaps my favorite definition of the gospel, and we're going to have it in the bulletin uh, every, um, every week during Lent as we study this book of Galatians. That's what Paul is so worked up about. That's what Paul's letter to the Galatians is all about. There's no way around it. Galatians is a passionate, even angry letter. For those Harry Potter fans out there, it is a howler. The specific issue that Paul worked has Paul that has Paul worked up has to do with the thought that some are challenging the gospel message's proclamation that God is calling His people into one single multi-ethnic family called the church. There are some, we could say, troublemakers in their community that are telling Gentile believers, meaning believers in Jesus who weren't Jewish, that in order to be real Jesus followers, they're going to need to start acting like Jews. Actually, we're told um, that if they really wanted to get into this church thing, Uh, the males, they're told, would actually have to have a little surgery and become circumcised. Ouch. As you can imagine, this caused quite a bit of controversy. Word gets back to Paul, and Paul is living. It's extremely important to note here, though, that Paul is not angry about the fact that there are Jewish Christians in this community. Paul himself was a Jew Jesus was a Jew. He called Jewish disciples, "This is not not about anti-Semitism. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Israel and her traditions were to be the avenue of how Christ, came into the world. God had told Israel's forefathers forefathers, that through them, he was going to somehow bless the entire world. And he did it by putting on flesh and becoming Israel's representative Messiah for the world. And Jesus did that by going to the cross to save humanity from the sin that separated them from their holy God. In that light, Israel played a vital role in redemptive history, one that we would be wise to study, one that we would be wise to learn from. That's why we do um, series like we did in Galatians earlier in the year. But after Jesus died the sacrificial death and was raised from the dead before he ascended into heaven, he commissioned his disciples to go and make other disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that He had commanded. Jesus had come to offer a new covenant, leveling the playing field for Jew and Gentile, for male and female, for slave and free. There was no partiality, no favorites. All are one in Christ. Everyone had a seat at the Lord's table. So Paul begins our passage for today with a bit of biography he says for i would have you know this is uh, picking up in uh, chapter two uh, one of galatians starting to verse 11 for i would have you know brothers and sisters that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel for i did not receive it from any man nor was i taught it i received it through a revelation of jesus christ See, Paul wasn't shy about providing his own testimony if he had to. Before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was a violent persecutor of the early church. He even says right there in Galatians that he tried to destroy the church. This behavior came from the zealous traditions that Paul had for the traditions of his fathers. Paul's not writing here as someone uh, who was lukewarm in his Jewish upbringings. He was a advocate for it, a passionate advocate for Torah. This is of monumental impact when we consider the impact um, that the, an encounter with Christ had on the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus. Not only did this encounter have a drastic effect on the man, it was also the direct source of the gospel message that he now proclaimed. Paul then spends the next half-chapter discussing how he had gained a reputation as being a man who had this drastic turnaround, as being the guy who is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Even though the apostle labors to show us that the gospel he received didn't come from the disciples in Jerusalem, that doesn't mean that it's a different gospel from the disciples in Jerusalem. The gospel Jesus announced is the same gospel that Peter and the early apostles preached in Jerusalem, and it's the same gospel that's got a hold of Paul, and it's the same gospel that's alive and well in this room today. It's that level of passion that fuels his description of an incident that occurred when Paul and Peter were both in Antioch. Antioch served as Paul's base of operations. It was the the launching pad for, for all three of his missionary journeys that are described in the book of Acts. It was also the first place where Jesus' followers were referred to as Christians. This particular episode takes place in a cafeteria, not a cafellatorium. They, they weren't that advanced. But for some reason, there is a problem brewing um, in their community. And those problems, <laughs> as problems are often, you know, often like this, problems uh, have a spotlight kind of shined on them uh, around the dinner table, around a cafeteria, around a lunchroom. I doubt it was a coincidence that Jesus made the defining act of his church a meal. I'd like to tell you a story that may sound familiar. So next weekend, uh, this Saturday, I have my uh, 20-year high school reunion. And in all honesty, I I loved high school, or at least I should say I loved three years of it. Um, Like many others, ninth grade was just not my favorite year. Um, it was 1995, and I was still trying to figure out like who I was. I had long, greasy hair with rock band T-shirts and a flannel shirt, along with like ripped up jeans. I was like straight out of Wayne's World, you know. I mean, I still dress like that sometimes, but not with the same level of confidence. Um, anyway, because of the way the school district cookie crumbled. Most of my middle school friends didn't go to Parkville High with me, they went, they went to Lock Raven. So I barely knew anyone. And back when we had, this was also back when we had um, a seven period schedule. So that meant that um, every day uh, was the exact same day, and it meant you had lunch every day with the same people every day. So. The only friends that I had made thus far were the magnet school students who were in band with me. I know it's hard to imagine just how cool I was. Um, But none of them had lunch with me. For the first few days, I I tried to make friends and and there just wasn't anyone that I clicked with, so I ended up just sitting alone. Um, And then for most of the rest of the year, I sat with this guy from my English class who I assumed was my friend because he wanted to sit with me at lunch the thing was, this guy was definitely not my friend. He was more of a bully, although not in like a traditional sense. He, he was really weird, and he talked me into doing things that I really didn't want to do, but I did them because I was afraid of losing this one false friend that I had made. And so whatever, um, whenever I told him no, he'd start acting really mean, which just made things worse. So sometimes uh, we forget how much our actions can have a negative effect on others. So eventually, I I think I just waited out the year um, sitting at the end of other people's tables, making it look like I was sitting with them, hoping they wouldn't ask me to leave. Um, It was an absolute miserable year. And the next year, I cut my hair, and I cleaned up my act, and fortunately, I had lunch with all of my band friends. Um, I even got a girlfriend that year. But I was thinking about, so it got better, but I was thinking about that first year of high school when I was studying the text for this week. Again, it's important to remember that the Jesus community, the church, is supposed to be one single multi-ethnic family. No one is more important than anyone else. And evidently, there was a time, who knows for how long, when, when Paul and Peter, uh, Paul refers to Peter in Galatians as Cephas, which is just the Aramaic version of the word Peter, um, were, they were in Antioch together, and other leaders, with other leaders, and presumably lots of other Jesus followers. And for a while, the group acted like the family that they were when it came to the lunchroom. Jews, including Peter, the one who had sat at Jesus' side, uh, were eating meals right alongside the Gentiles. A beautiful and practical picture of how the church was all one in Christ. But, But then something happened that made Paul furious. Some Jewish Christians had come from Jerusalem, and when they went to the cafeteria with Peter, this man who was supposed to be the great leader of the church Peter suddenly chose not to sit with the Gentiles anymore. He actually started kind of distancing himself from the Gentiles. And then to make matters worse, Paul says that Peter's actions caused the other Jews in the room to follow suit. The phrase in the ESV describes how the other Jews acted hypocritically, a word that in the Greek implies play acting. In the Greek world, actors would make masks, that they would often uh, use uh, and have on the, at the end of a stick to show which character they were speaking through at any given time. And like Peter, they pretended to be something they weren't. Even Barnabas, this man who had spent so much time with Paul, followed Peter's actions. And before you knew it, there it was again, a table for the in crowd and a table for everybody else. Paul is furious. He storms up to Peter in front of everyone and gives him this little speech. He says, if you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're being observed by the watchdogs of Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? It's clear that there was a lot going on in this statement, and I wouldn't want to be accused of reading anything into this text that isn't there, but I can't help but wonder if there isn't a hint of Paul's expectations on Peter here. As a Jew in the statement, Peter, you're a Jew. A part of the people chosen by God set apart to be a blessing to the nations. Not to mention, you walked aside the Master for three years and after he was crucified and raised, and you heard, you heard, you stood there and heard his audible words of his great commission to make disciples of all nations, calling everyone to single one single multi-ethnic family. You even watched as the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles who heard the gospel message that you preached. You can read about that in Acts 10. Peter, 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 of all people, you should know better. One of the things I love about the New Testament and its usage of the character of Peter is that we can so easily slap our heads to our forehead and say, Peter, I can't believe you did it again. I can't believe you lost faith again, Peter. I I can't believe you lost the plot again, Peter. But (laughs) Peter is me. Peter is us. I'm the one who continually wants to supplement the gospel with things that appease my own bias. We, as a church, as a church worldwide, we are so good at coming up with things that we'd like to tack on to God's grace. We've been doing it for centuries now. It's grace and Jewish culture. Grace and Jewish traditions, grace and Roman Catholicism, grace and anti-Roman Catholicism, grace and enlightenment, grace and traditional American values, grace and a liberal education, grace and social justice. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, they can be tremendous things. But just as the Jewish traditions of the Jerusalem Christians were good things, But when we use them as reasons to create divisions between us and them, we have strayed too far from the good news that is offered in Jesus Christ. That is why Paul was so upset with Peter. And that is what compels Paul to finish this section of the text with this discussion of a thing called justification. What justifies The Gentile inclusion at God's table. What justifies the Gentile inclusion into God's family? Who is it that makes a space for them at the table? Here's what Paul says, picking up in in chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Nothing wrong with this translation. You should probably be aware, though, as many who have studied this text over the past couple of weeks, um, there is a uh, kind of a, some who have argued for a different translation of verse 16 there. Um, some have argued that it could be translated, we know that a person is not declared righteous through the works of the law or Torah, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus the, the Messiah. So why the distinction? The first comes from a Reformation tradition that rightfully sought to show that it's not membership in an organization that justifies our place at God's table, but rather our faith in Christ. The latter translation seeks to show that ultimately it was, it was Jesus' faithfulness as Israel's Messiah that invites us into faith in him in the first place. Tomes have been written about this in recent years, and I think that the points that are brought up on all sides are mostly brought up for good reasons, but frankly, it is ironic that the debate itself has caused exactly the sort of divisions that Paul is so upset at Peter over. See, here's what isn't up for debate as far as I'm concerned. Your identity, your place in God's family, your story finds its place only in the context of God's story. Christian, you are justified at the Lord's table only because of what Jesus was and is, not because you did Judaism or Christianity, for that matter, right. Paul goes on, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we, were too, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, meaning that if you are so concerned with keeping the law, you're going to find that you're actually not very good at it. You're not very good at keeping it for the law, for through the law, Paul says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And perhaps here is the whole thing in summary. Paul says, and here's, here's the verse to memorize for the day, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live I now live in the the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness first through the law that Christ died for no purpose. See, here's the thing, New Hope Community Church. Your new hope is found in Christ alone. Whatever you were before Christ or apart from Christ. We're called to put it down. You're called to die to self and to live into Christ's faithfulness. You're called to pick up your cross and follow Him. And the life you live, you live in Christ. The life you live, you live in Christ. The life you live, you live in Christ at your job, in your school, with your friends, in your sphere of influence, with your employees, with your family, with your kids. You do it all. All by faith in the knowledge that in Christ you can do all things through He who strengthens you. Your strength comes from Him, not from your own righteousness. And this is going to have implications on all the facets of our lives. It will be a life that is marked by sacrifice and humility, thinking of others before yourself. This will have implications on everything from big-picture thoughts to how we wrestle with our place in the universe to then individual choices to who we sit with at the cafeteria. The ground at the cross, the ground at the foot of the cross is level, and it compels us to stand up against anyone who says no, division us and them. It compels us to stand up against injustice. See, Paul didn't have to stand up for the Gentiles. He could have just gone about his business as another Jew and perhaps done quite well, but instead he had the courage to stand up to power, to speak truth to power on behalf of the oppressed. Sure, in that moment, it was just some trouble, some, some goofiness in the cafeteria. But tomorrow, it would be Jewish Christians telling Gentile men that they need to be circumcised in order to get on good, God's good side. And the next day, it would be ethnic divisions that would lead to the worst type of human practices that humanity can dream up. War and conquest and imperialism and tyranny and slavery and genocide. How heartbreaking it is that when we look at the pages of history... We see the church not just complicit in this injustice. we see the church as the perpetrators of this injustice. This week, after studying this text, I came uh, to think about the, Dr. King's letter to a, in a Birmingham jail, from a Birmingham jail. And I just wanted to read this, this passage from this in, in clothing, closing. There was a time. When the church was very powerful, in a time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators, but the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than men. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They too were, I love this, God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated by their efforts an example they brought in an end they brought an end to ancient evils such as infanticide and gladiatorial contests things are different now for so often the contemporary church is a weak ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound so often it is an arch defender of the status quo Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church and never, as, as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as a, an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20 or the 21st century. Every day I meet with young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. I believe that the church is called to be anticipatory of the new creation community that is to come. When we read Revelation 21 and 22... And we see this beautiful picture of heaven and earth being one. The church is called to anticipate that, to live into that, to live like Jesus is on the throne now, not then, now. We're called to live that reality now without fear, as we say no to hate and injustice and violence. And when we fall short of that hope, as we surely will, we trust again that it never was in our righteousness that we had our hope and our trust in. It was always the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We're not called to be perfect people, we're called to be Christ followers and trust in his righteousness. That's where we get our holiness from. That's where we get our righteousness from because he who knew no sin became sin and died a sacrificial life for us. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for the life of this community, for the courage and the strength that I I get from the men and women who are in this room. I just pray that um, you would strengthen us, that you would comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable, that you would rock our very lives as you remind us about our personal ministry, about the things that you're calling us to do The things that that you've woken us up about in regards to the holy discontent that we have. The things that aren't right in this world that you're calling us, our personal selves, our specific calling. You're calling us to use those gifts that you've put in us in order to, to follow you in new creation. We do all of this inside the faithfulness of you, Lord. And the one who died that sacrificial death and offers us new life, new creation in your resurrection power. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.